And a few days later, we were back in Belfast and Michael's younger brother, the flat in Fitzroy Avenue, and Charlie just came in and said, John Peel's playing your record. No way! <laughs> we went, what? Recorded live at Machine Sound London, this is the Bad Before the Bad Before podcast, and I am your host, Jazz Langston. And welcome to episode eight. Eight rhymes are great. You're my mate, the fish markets in Billingsgate. And what an episode we've got in store for you today, as we are celebrating the release of our guest's brand new album, Hard Cold Fire, which is being released this Friday on the 5th of May through Marshall Records. And I promise you, it's a hell of an album, so you all need to get excited about it. During this episode, we talk about being involved in rock operas, providing the soundtrack to fights in Coronation Street, writing songs about sweet factories in a different galaxy, performing Clash covers in an old people's home, and how they ended up calling themselves one of the best band names of all time, along with the story behind how the question mark beside it became a question mark beside it. So that's enough of my inane, unfunny bullshit. Let's jump straight in with episode eight of the Bad Before the Bad Before podcast with our guest, the one and only Mr. Andy Cairns of Therapy. Andy, welcome to the show. Hiya, how you doing? Absolute pleasure to have you on, man. What a privilege. Thanks for having us, man. How's it all going? You good? Yeah, good, good, yeah. Busy. New album on the way? Oh, new album on the way, lots of promo, lots of travelling. Yeah, I've heard the album. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. Oh, wow, thanks, mate. No, it. thank you, man. It's fucking great. I love oh, it. Thank you, fella. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I've had the privilege of uh, having a sneaky peek. So. Oh, good, man. All right, man. Should we jump straight in? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, take us right back to the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Where was you born? I was born in Antrim Hospital in Northern Ireland in 1965. And I was born on the 22nd of September 1965 in the Antrim Hospital. And I lived in Antrim for four years. My parents were from Belfast. And whenever the tr- what they call the Troubles really kicked off, they moved to Antrim. But Antrim was quite politically unsettled as well. So they moved down the road to um, a farming town called Ballyclare which is about 16 miles outside Belfast city centre, but the north of Ireland's not very big. So, you know, that was quite a big difference culturally. Uh, and that's where I grew up. And were you a musical family? Not at all. The only, the only music, <laughs> that's what they, they, always, they always used to have this conversation. Um, and quite a lot of my father's side of the parents, uh, my father's side were in the military. And I think I had an older, un- Uncle Walter that might have been in the Royal Irish Rifles that played the harmonica. <laughs> oh, wow. But, I think, that, but I, think, I think that's when he was serving abroad, he played the harmonica. Because he used to rack their brains going, well, where did he get the interest in music from? Because it certainly wasn't my dad or my mom. Right? And they came up with this Uncle Walter. They'd been in the military. They used to play harmonica. So that's maybe it's from him. <laughs> that, that's got to be where the family musical genes come yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you play harmonica? Uh, badly, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I went through a phase once where I thought, well, I may as well teach myself it. And uh, yeah, I didn't exactly cover myself in glory. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you discover your instrument then? How did that end up coming about? Well, I kind of was into music because 
to, to kind of digress a little bit, whenever we were at primary school, uh, whenever I was in P2, so I'd have been, what, six coming seven, uh, a teacher came into the class one day and said that the primary school has been given a lot of old musical instruments by uh, the local council. Would anyone here be interested in playing any? And I kind of like music. I know I like to hear music around the house. I wasn't fanatical about it yet. And I put my hand up, as did a lad called David Apsley and a lad called Herbie McGee and two girls, I think Lorna and Carla and I. And they took us around to the storeroom and they had two dusty old violins, which they got. And I was late. I was the last one into the room. And both Herbie and Dave got trumpets. And the only <laughs> instrument left for me was trombone. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I got a trombone at the age of seven and they sent a music teacher around, uh, Mr. Cook, his name was, every Tuesday. And we got, um, we got like during lunchtime, we would go to the music room and he would teach us how to play these instruments. And then, you know, little school events, you know, like whenever they would have the end of year shows, I would get to play some tuning that we would, they would get us playing together. But then whenever I went to secondary education, I had an orchestra. Um, they used to do Gilbert and Sullivan and all that nonsense and Mikado and HMS Pinafore and all that stuff and they had me playing in the orchestra so I played the trombone up until I was 16 but anyway concurrently with that what happened was I got really into punk when I was 12 years of age because you know I fell in love with the Buzzcocks after hearing one of the records and a woman one of my mates lived five doors down and he had an uncle who died so one day there was a rap at the door and his mom basically said, said to my mom, I hear your Andrews in the music. You know, my brother's just passed away and he left this guitar with Andrew oh, being interested wow. in it. So my mom came in and said, oh, Mrs. Kissick's giving you a guitar. And I took the guitar and didn't really know much about it. But there was another lad. Uh, do you, have you ever heard of a thing called the Boys Brigade? It was like Scouts kind of thing. Yeah, oh yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I used to go to the Boys Brigade, like one, I think it was every Tuesday night. And there was a guy there that was one of the, the leaders of the boys were good, one of the older guys. And I knew that he played guitar. He was in a status quo covers band called Piledriver. Wow. And I'd said to him, look, I've been given a guitar. I don't know how to play anything. Could you teach me? So, you know, one of the, you would get your skills every week. So every week I'd bring my guitar to the boys brigade and he would show me a few things. So he showed me how to tune it, how to string it, how to tune it. And then he said, well, what songs do you want to learn? What do you like? Uh, and I said, I, I like the Buzz Cox, I like the undertones, uh, I like the Ramones. And he went, well, then you're set, because you just need to learn bar chords. <laughs> and I said, what is this bar chord you speak of? And he said, you, you get an E or an A chord and you just slide, put one finger across all the bar of the neck, that's what you can And that's how they write the songs. So whenever I got my little guitar and I, bought, I got a little amp for Christmas and I was able to put an electric guitar into the amp with a distortion pedal and play a bar chord, my God, that's how the Ramones did it, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that was how I learned to write songs. But just, I knew one chord and just slid up and down the neck and was able to kind of write rudimentary songs by doing that. Amazing. What a, do you know what? I never thought it was going to start with a trombone, first of all. <laughs> but what what a beautiful story. How you sort of like being, you sort of like inherited a, a guitar just through someone else knowing your your love of music. Yeah, and it's also, if it hadn't have been for punk, because I wouldn't have, I, I think if I'd have said my favourite band was Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know, or Yes, I wouldn't have been able to learn those songs, so I, <laughs> probably, I probably would have lost interest. But the fact that this thing called the bar chord, you could actually have a mini orchestra in your hand. Absolutely. And just be moving that up and down the neck. And it made sense, so, you know, I would say, you know, and he would show me like, well, teenage kicks, it's just this, you just move that chord up and down the neck. 
So then that, that meant that I could sit in the sofa at home and just move a bar cord around the neck. And I, yeah. then that's when I started writing little melodies in my head and singing along. So were you starting to write from a really, the real early stages of learning? Oh, completely. I mean, we had yeah. little, all the mates. There was a guy called Andrew Henry. Uh, this is like when we were about 13, 14, and, and he had a little born tempe organ in his mama's house. You know, like those ones that you press a button and plays a full chord. And there was a guy at school called Paul, Gla- Paul Clyde, whose dad was in a show band that went around all the working men's clubs and played Beatles covers and stuff like that. So, you know, we would get together. And then the the, um, the lady that gave me the guitar, her son, Alan, who I went to school with, he got himself a little bass. So we, we would just be in and out of each other's houses with I mean, these tiny little five watt amps and yeah and play play make up songs about school dinners and what our favorite <laughs> sweets were and stuff like that <laughs> can you remember the first songs that you wrote yeah it was uh i mean we had a really bizarre sense of humor it was do you remember sweets called midget gems yes absolutely yeah, yeah well we always because there was a shop called macaulay's that with the housing estate that we all lived in there was a shop on the corner that sold quarters of sweets and jars yeah. And we all used to have favourites, and people used to think I was odd because I like midget gems because everyone else <laughs> liked stuff with chocolate in them or whatever. And then we had a, I think one of us had talked about, you know, well, I think I'd said, you know, this is all when I was 13 or 14, you know, I would like to discover a planet where there was midget gems growing on trees. <laughs> and the first song I ever wrote was called Discovering the Android Midget Gem Factory. <laughs> and it was kind of, a, I think it, it sounded a bit like You Really Got Me by the Kinks. And the, cor- the chorus that was so rudimentary, it just followed exactly what the guitar riff was. But that was the first song. There was a guy we didn't like at school called Robert. So there was a song called Rockin' Robert because he was really unrocking. There was a song <laughs> called School Dinners, which is self-explanatory because they, they were falling. Um, and just little things like that. And and then uh, uh, the drummer was called Paul Clyde. His nickname was Clyde. And we brought out a little cassette and um, because he had brought most of the gear down because his dad was... <laughs> he, says, he said, you guys never thank, thank me enough for bringing all these instruments and amplifiers down if it wasn't for my dad so we called the demo tape a tribute to Clyde <laughs> and it was it was recorded on a little kind of a little cassette player yeah oh uh, really yeah I don't know where it is I've, I've tried to look for it there's there's a dreadful version and I say version in the loosest possible term of us trying to do this turn in big enough for the both of us but it's barred. oh wow <laughs> I, I mean literally it doesn't sound like that it sounds like you know uh Oh God, I, don't, I don't know, but I just remember I heard that actually a few years ago because my mum rather embarrassingly found the version we did of that. Oh, said, wow. And said, do you remember this? It was like 13-year-old me going, <laughs> in a sort of Northern Irish accent. <laughs> oh, I'd love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, so maybe next time I'm home, we'll see if you still got it. And then, yeah, so that was the band. The first band I was in, it was called Omex, O-M-E-X. Omex. Yeah, I know that it was. It doesn't mean anything. We just thought it sounded like someone from Doctor Who. Oh, really? Yeah, that's actually quite a cool name, and it's like <laughs> it's just it's just a word that you just randomly come up with. Yeah, well, we were. We, I suppose it was Protex by the punk band from Belfast called Protex, who named it after Protex Blue, the song of the Clash. Right, uh, and I think the X there was, there was a there was a thing in Northern Irish punk at the time, the extremists and the X producers. They all seemed to have X's in their names. Right, we were, we were thirteen year old kids that thought, well, we really should have an X in the, in the name of the band somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so it'd be safe to say that it was punk rock that kicked everything off for you. Mm, yeah, bands like the Buzzcocks and that they were the first. Is that like the first bands that like? Spoke to you? Oh, completely. I mean, I'd always. I mean, whenever I was a kid, 
I used to love glam rock because it was only seven and eight, and I was allowed to watch Top of the Pops. Mm-hmm. I, my mom says she always remembers, I like David Bowie, I like T-Rex, and I like The Sweet. And I wouldn't stop singing Blockbuster by The Sweet, which was the number one in 1972 or something. So they bought that record, and then I played it so much. I learned how to use, when I was in the little arm and the needle, you know, on the record player, so yeah. keep going back and So they hit it because it was playing <laughs> it so much. Um, and then I suppose really... Whenever I first, the first record I bought with my own money was the Buzzcocks. They were falling in love, and I got love by its album. Amazing. And it was that was melodic, melancholy punk, so the undertones um, and the Ramones I used to love as well. Uh, and that was kind of where now that kind of that really got me obsessed. I mean, the Damned used to love the Damned as well, the Clash. Yeah. And then I suppose what happened was whenever I was fourteen, I heard Joy Division. Right. And the lad whose mom had given me the guitar, Alan Kissick, he. He lost interest. You know, he, uh, he was in, enough of being in this band that sings about midget gems, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and off he went. And uh, he 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 gave me his bass, so I had this little bass. And at that point in time, Peter Hook, I, Peter, my heroes. Then I started listening to the Stranglers and Joy Division. And one thing about punk, when you listen to a lot of those first wave punk bands, the bass players are always brilliant, all amazing, all the yeah. jam, bass lines, the ruts, you know what I mean, and then. John Jacques Brunel. So I had this bass in my house and a guitar. And because I thought John Jacques Brunel and Peter Hook were really cool, I ended up playing the bass a lot more. Right. And, and the, the good thing about the Joy Division, when they brought out Unknown Pleasures, it was the first time ever that I started working stuff out for myself. Because the guy at the BBA showed me bar chords and it was pretty easy to kind of play along with Blitzkrieg Bob and all that. But you had to put a bit of work into working out hookies bass lines because there was right. no two string up. And I started playing along the Unknown Pleasures. And there was also a guy in the estate across from ours that I met one day um, at school. He was a year above me and he was into Joy Division and he had a bass guitar. So we would actually go around to each other's houses and have working out hookies bass line sessions. Oh, amazing. So we'd put on Unknown Pleasures and we'd go, well, she's lost control. I think it's played like this. And he'd go, well, I think it's played like that. And between the two of us, we'd work out how to play it. And that became my instrument of choice, to be honest, right up until therapy started. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So you beca- so you essentially became a bass player? Yeah, became a bass player in all the bands I was in from that day on. I was bassist until therapy. So with Omex, were you were you the vocalist? We all we all took turns. There was a guy Andrew Henry. He sang a bit. I sang a little bit, and it was but you know it was more like kind of fits of giggles. There was, right. you know, none of us could really sing, and it was we would kind of talk. I mean, it probably we could probably open for Sleaford Mods now. You know, I mean, there's a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of like talk singing going on, and because we were all too too shy and too self-conscious to actually try and hold a note. Uh, did you guys end up doing any gigs at all? No, I mean, just before, well, I can't remember the name of the band, but we, we got a lad in called Paul Hunter, who lived at the bottom of our estate, and his claim to fame was he looked like Sting. <laughs> so, um, we, needed, we needed a singer because we thought, well, none of us can sing and we want to get someone in that sings. And there was a lad that lived in the house in the corner of our estate called Paul Hunter, and he was a year above us at school, but the place had got really big at the time. And, and he had got naturally blonde hair and he'd got it cut like Stings. Yeah. He, he dressed like Stings, so all the girls thought he was great. 
So we thought, if we're going to have a singer, we should probably get him in. <laughs> Left, he couldn't sing to save his life. He was terrible, but he looked like Sting, so he was in the band. <laughs> there, there was a, what they call in, in North of Ireland, there was an orange hall, which was like a, a church hall that Protestant marching bands would sometimes rehearse in. And that was the only place in our town that you could actually get for free to rehearse in. Oh, all right. Um, they said... Uh, you can rehearse in here. We changed the name of the band from Omex, and I honestly can't remember what the... I think it didn't have a name at this point. They said, you can rehearse here, so we'll not be annoying our parents. But we have um, a day, an afternoon day every Thursday where a lot of the old dears come in and like have cups of tea, and they have... Somebody will come on and play a penny whistle, and someone will get up and tell jokes, and you know you can do a show for them. And it was like... Uh, we said, okay, so we used to rehearse there, and then we did a gig. Wow. <laughs> And we did we did all our own songs, and then we did a cover of Career Opportunities by The Clash. Amazing! Uh, and it's like, um, and it was like it was literally women in their late sixties having yeah. tea and Victoria Sponge, and there was somebody come on and, and told really mild, you know, really really sweet jokes, and then there was somebody come on and played an accordion, and then we come on, and it was like literally we never got asked back. Let's put it that way. <laughs> was was that your first public performance? Well, my, my first public performances were on the trombone for like school orchestras. And right, things like, right. Well, they, they know the end of year dues whenever they have. Yeah. Well, here's yeah. the land playing, you know, whatever it was. So I had some experience of that, but this was kind of different. And it, I wasn't really nervous because in New York, our very own Sting, Paul Hunter, was singing. <laughs> so, I, I, so I was able to kind of just take a back seat. You know, I could just kind of stand at the back and just John Entwistle like play these kind of <laughs> Northland bass lines. <laughs> While he took all the flag. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you go down? Did the old dears um, love it? Oh no, they they they, they looked like the look of terror will stay oh, with them. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean it was I mean it wasn't even it was I think it was one of those things when we come on switch the guitars on there was feedback and you, they were visibly wincing. You know, <laughs> when they heard the feedback and and then a couple of them were doing that thing that all people do where they look at you without changing and then shake your head. <laughs> I'm terribly disappointed and uh, a few of them get up and left um, so like that was it and uh, yeah as I say we were never asked back <laughs> that's amazing so from Omex where did you go from there what was the next band lineup for you well when I went to secondary school I, I met a very good friend of mine uh, called Chris uh, and he was a guitar player and he was kind of it was the first musician that we'd started playing with that wasn't really into punk so he could play guitar. He was a very good guitar player. You know, he could, well, to me, he was because he could play Hendrix licks and he could play Black Sabbath licks and, and Led Zeppelin licks. He wasn't really into punk, though. He liked Stiff Little Fingers, though, which is where we met. We, we both liked Stiff Little Fingers. So I would go over to his house um, and we didn't have a drummer at the time. Uh, and he would always see it a wah wah pedal. So we, they, we would kind of, I would go over there and say, oh, this guy likes Stiff Little Fingers. And then we'd go into these kind of blues jams, a wah wah, and then I would go, well, if we're going to write some songs, can we kind of leave the wow? <laughs> yeah, hopefully leave it in the cupboard. And he's going, yeah, man, Carlos Santana and stuff like this. And we got to meet, I don't know how we, I think we met him at a UK subs gig or something. There was a guy called Gordy Walker from Belfast. He got talking to us one night um, and he said, I'll be your drummer. You know, I can drum. And then we changed the name of the band from, well, there's no original members from Omex. It was called Every Mother's Son. Every Mother's Son. Every Mother's Son. And it was a three-piece. And Gordy Walker used to work a lot in the community at Woodville in Belfast. Um, one of the perks of the job was that he could get um, rehearsal space up there. 
So we'd go and rehearse in Woodfield uh, and there would be a proper PA. So it wouldn't just be like putting the guitar and the bass on the vocal. So through one arm, it would be, like, <laughs> it would be you know, a proper PA system and stuff like that. So that was, at that point in time though, because we couldn't really get a sound. So that was more, I, re- I really liked the jam. And Chris, who was really into all this 70s rock, he liked stuff like fingers, but he also liked the jam. So we did Down in the Tube Station at midnight. Wow, think, great bass line. Yeah, great bass line. We did Alternative Ulster. We did a few of our own songs, which I was trying to, I was trying to make it sound like New Order because Joy Division, uh, Ian had died and, and New Order had come at this point. Right. Uh, but then they would always get the wah-wah. Every time, you know, I'd, be, I'd be playing this melancholy bass line, and there'd be this kind of sly kind of round railroad sneaking in, blue, you know, blues jam. It'd be like, you know, that's what the arguments we have for the gang. Go, man, not every song has to be a blues jam, and eh? you know? <laughs> And what what sort of age were you then? So I'd have been sixteen at this point in time. Wow! And I was beginning to, you know, see my, my O levels were happening. I was doing O levels. As was Chris, he was in school with me. And, you know, we, we couldn't go into pubs really yet. Well, officially, you know, we couldn't go into yeah. pubs. And uh, it was, as they say, real life was getting in the way. So this was, as I say, that's why we started doing covers and stuff like that. You know, we yeah. had no intentions. So that kind of fizzled out because it got to, we did we did one gig. Gordy got us a gig. He was uh, at Queen's University. And it was a bill with, it was Billy Bragg and the Redskins. Oh, amazing. And a couple of local punk bands, and he said, well, I can get us on the bill first. So we went on at something like 12 o'clock in the afternoon to about 20 people. We did. We opened with one of our own songs, uh, and then we went into Down in the Tube Station at Midnight, which piqued people's interest because they knew the song. And then something went wrong <laughs> with my equipment. <laughs> so Chris started freeforming this blues wah. <laughs> ah, the wah-wah was the hero <laughs> of the day. <laughs> and, and then I think at that point in time, I, I couldn't get the bass to work again. And I think every time I went over to his house since then we played, but we never did another gig. So that was um, the next thing after that for me was Gordy was heavily involved in uh, cross-community work, which is bringing uh, Republican and Unionist Catholic Protestant sides of, of the country together. So he a lot of that involved music, you know, um, reconciliation and, and through music. Yeah. And he was really good at And he, um, the next thing I took part in then was he got together a bunch of musicians from all across the community, both sides, because he'd written a rock opera. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Called... <laughs> called The Earth Dies Screaming, which was about a nuclear war. Wow. And he, he, he planned to put it together in Woodfield Community Centre over two nights. So he'd written it, he'd got a local arm drum people in to act it. And uh, there was a guy called Colin Fleming, who was a really good, multi, he was a folk musician, but he was a really good multi-instrumentalist. A few female singers. Um, and I just played bass on it. Wow. And, it, and it was like, so at this point in time, I was 17 coming 18. And that was it then, because A-Levels happened next. And the, I did this thing at Woodville Community Centre, not far from the Shanker Road in Belfast. And it was like a cross-community thing. And it was like, I think, 40, 50-minute long rock opera about nuclear annihilation. Wow. <laughs> and it was good. There was a Moving Hearts. Here was Simon Nagashaki, the Irish band Moving Hearts. One of their cover versions, I think, to end with. But yeah, no, that was quite good. I mean, Gordy at the minute, actually, he's still making music. He plays for that punk band Protex. Oh, wow. Yeah, he's a drummer for Protex at the minute, and uh, he drums all across the world with them. But yeah, so that was the last 
that was the last thing then until life really got in the way. So that's that's quite a journey so far. I mean, going from so like 13, 14 to 17, mm. you've gone from like writing about midget jams mm. to doing jam covers and flirting with your own sort of songs to being in a rock opera. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a pretty busy couple of years. No, it was good, but it was like, um, I think it was always at the back of my mind, it wasn't the kind of music I wanted to make. Do you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And part of me was thinking, right, you know, I kind of want to, you know, and whenever I left school, I got a job. And the first thing I did was I bought, you know, bass, amps, effects, pedals, and all this. But it was kind of just getting on with life. And it wasn't until I was always playing at home, always going to gigs, always buying music. And it wasn't until I met Five Ewing, a drummer of therapy, that things changed for the next season. Right. So is that what happened next for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd got a job. It was quite well paid. It was it was for a, a famous tire company and I got like a flat and I got an apartment. It was 21 at this point in time. I didn't go to university and I still went to a lot of gigs, bought a lot of records, bought a lot of music equipment, but I still saw myself as a bass player. And I went to Gordy. Uh, that we've been talking about earlier. He was working at the University of Ulster at this point. He was helping the Ents officer putting on gigs. So he would, you know, if a band played that I'd heard of and they were playing the university, he would get me in and say, come on up, we'll, we'll hang out. And he, there was a thing on famously every year called Aid for Africa. It was a sort of uh, post-band aid thing that they always did where they raised money for charity. And I was just standing at the bar watching this band called League of Decency. They were a four-piece band, female singer. She looked like Susie Sue. Uh, a couple of kind of uh, late 20s or a, a late 20s kind of singer, late 20s guitarist, and a kid bass player and a very young looking drummer. And they did California Borales by Dead Kennedys. They did um, Love in a Void by Susie and the Banshees. They did New Rose by The Damned. Uh, it was all covers. Uh, and at the end of it, I just went up to the drummer and said, you're an amazing drummer. That, that was amazing. And it was Five Viewing who was the original therapy drummer. Right. And he went, well, to be honest, I like doing because it's a chance to play. And he was 18, he was doing his A-levels, he was at school, so he was a few years younger than me. But he said, I want to be in a band that plays my own material. And I was asking him what he was listening to, and we kind of had some bands in common, Sonic Youth, uh, Husker Du, bands like that, that we both liked, uh, Big Black, Minor Threat. Um, so what we decided to do, his, uh, his parents were separated, and on Monday his dad always worked late and wasn't back to nine at night. So we had this thing called the Monday Club, <laughs> well, I would, I would bring along um, a bass guitar and a guitar, and he had a, a drum kit set up in, in one of the rooms in his house uh, in a council estate in Larne, and we would just start jamming, and that's where all the germ of the early therapy stuff came from. Really? Whenever that started, you know, I actually thought when therapy started, I thought I was going to be the bass player, because that was it was only when we came to make our first demo tape that I decided, well, we couldn't get a guitarist, so why don't I play guitar? Because I knew how to play yeah, and I said, well, why don't, why don't I play guitar on the demo tape and then we can get somebody in? And actually what happened was Fife was in school uh, in his geography class with Michael McKeegan. And he says, well, I don't know a guitarist, but I know a really good bass player. And I said, well, I'll, I'll switch to guitar just until someone wow. else comes along. And that was it, yeah. Wow. And which is, which is why I think a lot of um, producers and everything always comment about whenever I play rhythm guitar, it, it's like it sits in with the drums quite often rather than going off. Right, because you're playing and, like a rhythm section. And I, I think I'm playing because I'm playing, I mean, um, Scream Major, arguably our most famous song, was a bass line I'd written. Right. Because initially I was up, you know, I, I, it was, um, initially I wanted to write a song like, you know, um, 
Chris Foxton or something. I know, blah, 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 blah. like a really, really yeah, long yeah. composer. And then it just ended up being a guitar riff and a guitar song. But yeah, it's a fucking great riff. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> it was a line to start with. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So going back a bit, so from the rock opera mm. up until like working for the tire company and everything, and before yeah. like you're meeting the the, yeah. the other guys, yeah. was then was there nothing else in between there? Was you sort of not not gigging or? Were you in any other bands at all? Yeah, but I kept in touch with Gordy. But Gordy was really busy and I was working. And it, occasionally he would he would say, look, I've got a room up at the uni. There's a amps and guitars up here. Do you want to come up and have a jam? Right. And we, and we would, I mean, like we would meet and we would, he would say, oh, there's a couple of students that he knew that were kind of into the Smiths and stuff like that. And he would just jam along with them. I mean, there was one excruciating night, which I, I never really forgave him for for years. <laughs> <laughs> he said, there's, there's a, the Students' Union's got a blues band playing tonight and um, the guitar player has to get off early, but they always just end on Roadhouse Blues with the doors. And uh, and I go, I can't play blues, isn't it? But, you know, why don't you just come along and just, I'll bring you on stage and say he's a mate of mine. And, and Gordy was drumming for him. And all you have to do is just play the chords. Don't worry, there's a Rhodes piano and everything. And I sort of got on. And it was a packed bar. It was the university bar was packed. And I'd watched the songs they did before. And they were doing like, you know, Crossroads by Cream and all this kind of stuff. Right. Well, really good guitar, bro. Off goes the guy. So I'm just sitting there. So we've got to do Roadhouse Blues in the door. On I come. So just an A. Just thumping away on A. So we're playing away. The singer's going for it. Drums. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> the singer turns around and he goes, keyboard player. And so he plays a keyboard solo. We're very doorsy and, you know, like that. <laughs> And then when that finishes, he goes, and we've got, thanks very much for helping us out on the guitar, Andy Kurtz. Take it away, Andy. Wanting me to bust out a solo, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like literally there shitting my pants going, really? <laughs> like this kind of dying horse. And then I'm looking at Gordy and Gordy's just looking at me. <laughs> but the, and then they were looking at that thing at one point, and then the keyboard player looks over at the singer and just goes, does the threatening, the slow <laughs> gesture. So, Thank you very much, Andy Kurtz. And then they roll up. And I was mortified, and I was afterwards, and I was just so ashamed. Did you play anything at all, or did you just play nothing? I I, I grew up on punk. I didn't, you know. I mean, <laughs> you, you would give you know, punk police would have thrown you in prison for playing a guitar solo. You know, like Henry Rollins once. Henry Rollins once beautifully said, "If you used to play a guitar solo on Black Flag Day, someone would go, oh, what's this, Freebird?" So it was. It was. So I, you know, I've never ever had I played a guitar solo in my life. <laughs> so I didn't even know what note to start on. Hello, mate. I'm the drummer from the headlining band. I just wanted to know if it's okay to borrow your entire drum kit tonight. But I live in North London. The gigs in South London. You don't expect me to get. Hello. Uh, he's hung up. I'm sure it'll be fine. Writing lyrics. Can you remember the first time that you like? Obviously, we talked about writing songs about midget gems and stuff. But can you remember write, writing like a serious? I'm writing a song. I did. I mean, I did try. I can't remember what any of them were. I think up until therapy, everything was pretty much collaborative. So you know, if right. there had been four of us in the rehearsal room, it would have been four of us around the table. Right. Got you. But I, I really enjoyed English literature and, and I did it for O level and A level at school. And I was lucky enough to have a really good teacher, especially for my A levels, that kind of developed my interest in it and pointed me in that direction. And so he would often ask me to write little bits and pieces. And I would sometimes bring them in. It was called Mr. Hazard, but sometimes bring them in, show them to him. And he would kind of comment on them and give me little pointers. And he, um, 
I think whenever therapy started, that was honestly really, it was never, a, it was all collaborative stuff like Rocket League. Midget Jam Factory, I think it written, I can't even remember that one. <laughs> but like, um, it would always be sort of what we sing about, and we would have all sat down. Even whenever I had that band with, with Gordy and the Wah Wah guitarist, Chris, that was all, we would pick something and we, we would sit around the table and write right. it. The therapy was the first time where it was actually, we would pick something and then I would either write most of it or would collaborate with Fife on it. And can you remember a point in time when you're thinking to yourself, this is what I want to do? Yeah, I mean, I think very early on, I talked about those Mondays, yeah. those Mondays that myself and Fife had. Because it'd be, as I said, been in all these little bands on and off. And part of the back of my brain always said, well, this is kind of, I love doing this and I would yeah. love to do this. But I kind of felt almost, it was that small town mentality of the only way I'd grown up was, this would never happen to me. I come from the north of Ireland. I live in a small farming town on the outskirts of Belfast. People don't really come to play Northern Ireland much. I'm never really going to get much of a chance to get outside. So this is going to be something that will always, I'll hang on to as a life raft for the rest of my life because I love music. But whenever we started meeting on Monday and I heard how good a drummer Fife was and how his drumming style really locked in with my, what was initially bass playing and then my guitar playing, I actually began to think we'd written, um, we'd written Sky, a song called Skyward that ended up in Baby Teeth. And we'd, uh, I'd written a song called Bloody Blue after watching Blue Velvet by David Lynch. Yeah, yeah, great movie. And we, 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 took them, we took them home to sit and listen to. Each we made a cassette and I went home and listened to it. And I thought, yeah, this, this could actually, we could get gigs out of this. I mean, I wasn't thinking I'll be on stage at Wembley Arena. And, you know, I was thinking we can actually get a band that plays all original material. We can get in the van and we can probably play places all around Ireland. This could happen. You know what I mean? That's how it started because everything just fit it into place. Do you feel like it gave you a purpose? Um, I don't know if a purpose would be the right term. It's certainly, if I'm 100% honest, it took me from a direction I was going in that wasn't advisable. I think through having a bit of money, but working in a factory and feeling frustrating, frustrated, sorry, all the time. I was drinking a lot too much. Um, I began to kind of, I had no outlet for how bleak I felt about the world around me. Right. And I think being in the band and enjoying it so much gave me a focus more than a purpose, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and it meant that, you know, whenever, you know, if I knew that me and Fife and Michael were getting together in his room on Monday with our little tiny cornflakes box amps and, <laughs> and our little tape player to record it all, I would make sure that I changed my guitar strings. I would make sure that um, whatever riffs would worked on the week before I'd practice so they're up to date. And then, you know, that's, then the next thing was, okay, right, we're practicing in your house, Fife. You know, there's a place down the road in Newton Abbey. It's got a rehearsal studio and it's whatever it was, 10 quid or something, you know, for a session. If we all chip in three quid once a week, we can rehearse. And I, I was the only one that drove at the time. So I was having right. chuck all the gear in my car, we'll drive down there and we'll have a full PA system. And it sounded even better, of course, once we got yeah. a full background PA through Yeah. And then it just went from there. How did you end up being the vocalist? Because what I find a lot with uh, alternative bands, especially if you come from like a trombone and like mm -hmm. a self-taught sort of background, did you end up becoming a singer through necessity or was you always wanting to be the, a front man? No, no, no. It was, it was through necessity. When therapy started, 
we were really in a band called Husker Do. And we really, we actually, one of the earliest gigs we saw whenever I'd met Fife, Snuff played at the Art College in Belfast. Right. And we went to see Snuff. And of course, Duncan used to sing for Snuff and the guitar player would sing. So the dynamic very, very early on was we would take turns singing. And what helped us was we were really into Big Black and the work of Steve Albini. So he didn't really sing as such. He was more sarcastic and he told these kind of very gritty down to earth stories about fucked up characters and small right. kind of yeah. So we thought, okay, well, if we can kind of do that, if we can make little sort of vignettes about fucked up Northeast Antrim, then we can do that. And then with Husker Do, we said, well, the dynamic could be, because Fife wasn't very, very confident in singing. Neither was I, but the more melodic bits I could do. So whenever we went to see Snuff, you know, one of them would sing the really melodic bit and the other one would do the shout. And so that was the initial therapy dynamic. So if we had anything a bit shouty or talky, Fife would take that. And if there was anything that needed a bit of melody, I would take that on. We also had our vocals very low in the mix because we were self-conscious. And when we recorded when we recorded our first demos, they were covered in distortion and delay and mixed really down. Right. But it was just through the first two demo tapes that we released, we got a lot of gigs around Ireland. And I actually didn't I realize after a while I don't feel uncomfortable singing. You know, I think we can carry a tune a little bit. I'm not, you know, I'm not a great singer, but I can carry a tune. And then I think as the songs got more melodic over the months ahead, Fife took a back seat. So, you know, he would go, well, why don't you sing the verse and the chorus? Not just, you know, because what would normally right. happen is Fife would sing the verse and I would come in on the chorus. And as that developed, he would go, well, why don't you just sing the whole thing? And then it kind of ended up, by the time it got to trouble gum, I was doing like 80% of the vocals. Well, the one thing the therapy have always done great is harmonies. Mm. So that come from Fife doing some some singing and wanting to be involved or is just something that you uh, you liked orchestrating? I, I I was always good at working harmonies out. Yeah. And I think it's because of, I honestly think it's because of the buzzcocks. Right. Yeah. I, I, did, I didn't know it at the time, but if you listen back to there, they had, oh, wow. Yeah, and yeah. Harmonies on it. And I would, because I was such a huge fan, I mean, I played those records to death, so I knew every single note. So I would, whenever we were beginning to put harmonies on records, like a uh, very first album's got a track on it called Skyward, which has got this harmony. And I would just, I wouldn't even think about it. It would be like, okay, what would go underneath that? Yeah. So in the early days, I would sing the harmony into a cassette player uh, and give it to Fife, and Fife would go home and learn it so that he got that. Because it's, you know, if you're not a comfortable singer, it's hard to, if someone's singing one note, stick there. Yeah. And then uh, most of the records in the 90s, I would do all the harmonies myself. But then Michael McKeegan recently started singing uh, over the last five years, and he can actually hold the tune, and and he works. He, I will, I'll work at the harmonies and give them to him and he learns them and does them live. It's not Jerusalem. The name Therapy. Mm-hmm. What a fucking band name. <laughs> where did that come from? And to follow up, where did the question mark come into play? Well, the band name, we wanted something that was direct and memorable. And we talked about names like The Who and The Jam, something that was just kind of direct. And I think all the early music had that sonic youth tremolo picking really high up the next discordancy. And we would have these sections in our songs when we rehearsed, but those sections would go on for a long time. And it was cathartic. And I think at the end of one of the sessions, someone had mentioned, well, I I feel brilliant after that. It was was like therapy. Ah. And then, well, that would be a good band name. 
Now that the question mark then was, we were, we were in honest therapy with a question mark for quite a while around Ireland. We'd, we'd done a few gigs, but there's a, a punk collective called Warzone that put us on on our early shows, a DIY not-for-profit organization. And they had this kind of thing where they booked you. And in their offices, they had a Xerox photocopying machine. So you would go home and A4 sheet of paper and design it. Yeah. Hand it to them and they would print up 40, 50 copies. And then punkers would go around and put them all up around the town center with a stapler. That was kind of the way it worked. Or else you would hand them out as flyers at bars. Yeah. So uh, for the first gig we did for Warzone, we, we just did like the name of the band. And I, I don't know if you remember a thing called Let Reset. No. It, was, you know, it used to be a really primitive form of uh, typesetting. So you would buy a sheet of clear paper with an alphabet on it. Ah, yeah. And you would put it on the sheet and then you would rub it yeah, with a pencil. Rub it on, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly so we had a sheet of that and so I'd spent some money and got that done. I'd done some kind of graphic just with black pen and I did therapy and then Fife went, it was an A4 sheet of paper. Uh, you've actually started therapy too far over to the left. It looks really weird. <laughs> well, look, it looks all right. And he went, no, no, but your eye reads from left to right. So it should be center of the A4. And I went, well, I've actually got no more letters on this letter sheet. And he, he was going, I'm sorry, I just can't let it go. It looks oh, really wow. So um, I went, okay, well, what do we do? And, I, and do you want me to do another one? I go, no, but the letters, the, the, the type looks really good. So we just, and this is uh, this is maybe way before your time. There was a comedian called Kelly Monteith. Right. He used to, Canadian kid. He used to have a show on every on every, I think it was every Monday, me and Fife had been watching TV once and he was talking about American advertising and how sneaky it was. And he said he was driving by a diner and there was a neon sign going, thirsty, with a question mark. Thirsty? Hey, I guess I kind of am thirsty. And he pulled over <laughs> right. and he said, it's almost like before Bill Hicks. You know, right. So that was an in-joke with us about question marks after. The, and we said, well, what about putting the question marks? This is therapy. And he went, yeah, do it, do it. So we did it and we handed it to them. They're going, when we handed it to Warzone, they're going, what's the question mark all about? And we, so we told them the story and they kind of rolled their eyes. <laughs> so the next gig we did for them, we just gave them the poster with therapy without the question mark. And they actually went, where's the question mark? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to add it. And then what the, the big thing that made it stick was we self-released and self-produced our own single called Me Abstract because we couldn't get a record deal on our first two demos. So we said, let's do it ourselves. And uh, we got money from working in bars. I was working at a factory, you know what I mean? Michael got a job in a coffee shop or something. And we pre- we got raised the £1,000 it cost to print up a 1,000 singles, get the artwork done, and get the recording session done. So uh, we'd all we got the vinyl ordered, and they asked for the artwork, and we got the little painting that our friend George Smith had done, and we were going to write the logo. And then we looked at each other, do we add the bloody question mark? And it was like, well... People kind of know us for having the question mark now. And I think what it was is somebody, some punker had come to one of her gigs with a self-made therapy t-shirt and it had the question mark oh, on it. Oh, wow. And I think, like, well, that poor guy, if you don't put the question mark on it, you that t-shirt going to So we ended up general punk. So we put the question mark on this thing and we, we sent that away to the company and they sent back a thousand seven inch picture sleeves with a question mark on it. So that was it. We had to keep it there. That's amazing. I, th- I love the question mark though. It's oh, great. Yeah. It's great. It's such a it's such a unique little touch. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And that's that's such a great story as well. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> Do you remember a point where you thought we're fucking doing this? 
Yes, I do actually, because we had we brought a single out, we got all the copies, and we went and played, you know, around all of the places that we could get. Now at this point in time, it was hard to get places to play in the north of Ireland in a way because of the political situation. So we actually went down to the south of the country a lot, and we got gigs on punk bands. So there'd be like punk old dares, loads of punk bills, uh, and we were doing loads of shows around there. So every time we go, we bring a box of singles, and at the end, we'd sell three, four copies, and then. Um, up in the north, we went to this really brilliant record shop. It's no longer there called Caroline Music. It was on Ann Street in Belfast. And if you want it, you know, any obscure US hardcore, that's where you got it. If you want it kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, concrete socks or decadence within, that's where you got it. And they had this thing where if they liked your band, they would put up your demo tape yeah. on the shelf under local bands. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the guy there was called Angus, and we all really looked up to him. He was kind of like our John Peel, the Belfast John Peel. And we brought in the single one day and uh, he said, can you sell this? And he went, well, I'll have to see what it says like first. And he put it on and said, oh, that's really good. And he, he said, I'll take, I'll take five copies. And then I was in buying, I was in buying a record of Slint album or something five days later. And he said, have you got any more of those singles? We sold them all out. Oh, amazing. I went, really? And he went, yeah, I've just been telling people to come in the shop. So we end up selling them in the shop, which helped them get them through quicker. So anyway, a long way of saying this, the art college where myself and Fife had gone to see a show by Snuff, uh, and that's where we've got the idea of the two drummers. We thought someone approached us from the art college and said, we hear about you know, therapy are getting quite well known. So the art college holds, I think, 300 people. And we had only ever at this point played around Ireland to maybe 100 people, 120, and that was on usually three or four band bills. And we booked the art college. Um, they did a poster for us, which is the poster from our artwork. And we sold it out. Amazing. And it was like literally not even, we were like, oh my God. It was like, uh, so we'd only won seven inch single out and we'd sold it at a 300 cap venue in Belfast, but, but basically word of mouth. And it was like, we just thought, wow, this is amazing. So like, you know, I would, and also when we went on stage, we weren't looking at spikes, mouths, nit, what, nitwit, you know, all the usual crowd that would come to yeah. our gigs and go mad. We were looking at complete strangers. Um, that was like, wow. Yeah. So it's like no friends, just completely word of mouth. Yeah. So that was whenever we thought, wow. So, and then we, we did little things. Um, we would do things like we had a really good set of mates that would come and do lights for us, you know, just to be along for the ride. We've got, you know, the guy that I was sharing a flat with, he would use his car to drive us places. Um, and we had a little, a little tight crew that went all around Ireland at all hours. And, I, and all of us were still either at uni, uh, the band members were either at college, uni, I was working. A flatmate was working, so we would kind of be driving all around Ireland and getting back at three and four in the morning, and then having to get up and go to work. Yeah, oh, how was that? <laughs> um, I was still buzzing off the gigs that I didn't yeah. care, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, like we would we'd go and drive three hours to Dublin, we'd be at the arse end of an all day punk belt, so we'd go on about 12. By the time we got we rounded everyone up, got them in the car, the van, we crossed the border, dropped everyone home. I'd be in East Belfast at five where I was living at the time and I'd have to be in Ballymena 30 miles away to start work at seven. Fuck but it would like literally get an hour and a half sleep and then I'd be kind of buzzing with, you know, the gig the night before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also was a lot younger, so all that energy. <laughs> yeah, and that's paying your dues, isn't it? Yeah. Boys, I'm so sorry I'm so late. The buses were, and there was like, oh, and I could see you bought in all the equipment already. That is not cool. Whose beers are those? I'm fucking gasping. Less rock. What's the story about you guys getting signed? 
Can you remember that? Yeah, we had, um, we, we used to love a band. Well, we still love them, but they split up. We had, we, we had this seven inch single. So a couple of things happened. You know, we did that gig and sold it out. And then we, uh, somebody, our, the drummer in our band is called Neil Cooper. Now, he used to be in a band uh, in the very early 90s called The Beyond. They're from Derby. They're like an avant-garde metal band. They're an incredible band. Neil was only 17 when, he was, when the band started. They were signed as a subsidiary of EMI. And somebody with The Beyond had heard about this band called Therapy. So we got, someone got in touch, I think via Caroline Music, of all places, from this band, The Beyond, going, do you guys ever tour outside Ireland? Would you be interested in doing six shows with The Beyond? And we were like, what? And we got this guy, Mike Stack, he was called, he was looking after them. At the time we phoned him up and said, yeah, yeah, we'd like to have you along. I mean, it's just like little small gigs. And we said, well, are you sure? And he went, yeah. So they said, you know, they were, it was like tiny little venues. We got together, grew over six gigs and tour with them. And we had a day off before the London show. And we'd, I know, we'd never been done. I was driving the van at the point. So we did Newcastle, Birmingham, Edinburgh, Derby. London and on the day off in London we said well we should get our record to John Peel and um, we were incredibly naive we didn't know we had no plugger we didn't know how they were. I mean this record came out ourselves there's no distribution the distribution was us in a cardboard box wow I kind of thought well let's find out where the BBC is so we knew where the we found out where the BBC main building was I drove the van up double parked ran out with a single the concierge went who are you and I said I want to speak about John Peel and they went what and the girl behind the reception went, well, who's that? And he said, it's some, some guy with an Irish accent mentioning John Payton. She went, oh, he's not here. And I went, oh, I just wanted to. And she went, oh, come on over here. Went over to the reception desk and she went, look, John Payton's not actually in this building. And uh, what is it you want to do? And I said, I want to give this record to him. Are you the plugger? And I went, no, no, I'm actually the guitar player in the band. She went, uh, you, do you have a plugger? And I went, no. Do you have a record label? No. And she went, okay. And I went, I'm really sorry to waste your time. And she went, where have you come from? And I said, uh, Ireland. So there's this one, and she went, well, come back, just leave this with me. So that was, I think, a Friday night. The gig that we had in London was Saturday. And a few days later, we were back in Belfast, and Michael's younger brother had a flat in Fitzroy Avenue, and we were in the flat. And myself and Michael and some of our mates were in the living room of the house talking, and Charlie just came in and said, John Peel's playing your record. No way! <laughs> <laughs> we went, what? And we went into the kitchen and meet Abstract and was playing at the end of the wall. That was a therapy to meet Abstract. And he read out the address that we had on the back of the single because that was in the days when he just, Michael's home address was in the back of the single. So we started getting letters going uh, from people in you know, the UK going, can I buy your single at this point in time with 200 oh copies? Oh my God. So like it was, wow. So John Peel played it. And so at that point in time, we really liked a band called Ministry. Uh, yeah. And, uh, Al Jorgensen had a side project called Revolting Cox. Right. Which was yeah. Um, we also loved the band on Ouija Records from uh, London with a Scottish singer called Silverfish. They, yep. were noise, they were noise rock. So Michael came in one day and said, uh, I see Silverfish are playing Edinburgh and Glasgow. And some of our mates from school had gone to university in Edinburgh and Glasgow. So we got in touch with them and said, look, if we come over to see these gigs, can we crash on your floor? So they said, yeah. So I drove over. So me and Michael, he lives in the army, got the ferry went to Scotland, went to Edinburgh, for, went to Glasgow first of all, and we thought, well, we'll bring two copies of a single, one for Al Jorgensen and, and one for um, for Silverfish. So we got to the gig in Glasgow. It was the most bizarre thing. I just went up to the guy on reception and went, can I give this single to Al Jorgensen? And the guy in the, the door, you know, this is, this is before any of the bands had taken stage, and he's like, oh, go, go and do one, Sonny. You know, he says, unless you have a pass, you're not getting in. 
And one of one of Revolt and Cox is walking by and going, Where are you guys from? He said, Oh, we're from Belfast. Yeah, can I can <laughs> Yeah. He, he brought me and Michael backstage for the single. So with this copy of the single and uh <laughs> I kid you not, one of the members of the band was doing a huge sign of speed off an ironing board in the dress room. <laughs> 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 we were going, uh, we're kind of a band from uh, from Northern Ireland, and the, you know this is this is our first single, and we kind of gave it to one of the band members. And Al Jorgensen was there, but he just said no, so he didn't take it. So one of the band members took it. So with one copy left, and we went to see the gig. The gig was absolutely awesome. And then the next night, we went to see the same show in Edinburgh, but it was in uh, the venue in Edinburgh, slightly smaller venue. And after Silverfish played, they were standing at the bar. And I went up to the lead singer, Leslie, and introduced myself and said, we're, we're from a band from the north of Ireland. We've been played on Joe Peel, but we're called Therapy. And we really love your band and we love your label and everything like that. And that was it. And then we just hung out with them. And then I'd given them my home phone number in Belfast on the record. And about two weeks later, I got a phone call at home and my flatmate came in and said, there's a guy called Gary Walker from Ouija Records on the phone. And I thought my flatmate Murray was taking the piss because he used to he used to come in all the time and go, Seymour Steen's on from our <laughs> records. Is that what I mean? So I thought, like, no, 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 he is. So I went and took the call. It was Gary Walker, who was the head of Ouija Records. And he went, yeah, I've been talking to Silverfish. And they, they took your single home and played it and really liked it. And they said, I think this is something you might like. So would you guys have any material or anything around? Would you like to do an album with Ouija? Fucking amazing. That was it, yeah. And then that was just, that's how we went from there. What an incredible story. First off, imagine the world without John Peel. It'd be shit, wouldn't it? What a guy, what a guy that guy was. Yeah, and the thing is, I mean, also, we also say, we don't, I wish I knew the name of that receptionist. Yeah, no fair play to her. You know, and she had actually, she thought, she thought, look at these poor, these poor helpless Yeah. Poor. You know what I mean? She probably thought, and God knows how she got it to him. She got it to him, um, and he gave us two pin sessions after that as well. And no way! Yeah, we get two pin sessions whenever the albums were, and um, then we'd mentioned to Gary when I was talking to him at Weech Records that John Peters played the single. I said, "Yeah, I heard Leslie from Silverfish told me that." And we made two albums for Weecher, and then we we went to A and M and everything. But that it all kind of started with us putting out our own record, and I think the. The big spark going back to it was our art college gig because getting our record for sale in the shop and then selling that domestic gig just on word of mouth, it gave us a bit of belief. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, no, of course, yeah. of course. Mm. Man, that's incredible. That's so. That's so good. I'm, I'm like, it, that's made me excited. Oh wow! I felt like I was there with you. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I wanted to talk to you about, how I discovered therapy, the TV show Game On. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. With Samantha Junis. So that TV show, for me, Mm. probably apart from the young ones, it's one of the first shows where they started really incorporating really good alternative music. Yeah. Um, Because both Scream Angel and Going Nowhere were on that show did that have any effect for you guys at all with like a following or anything like that oh no it did i mean it, yeah it, you know whenever we did those those songs and that album you know at that point in time the venues were getting bigger the records were in the charts we did top of the pops but <laughs> the main thing was uh that you know they say it's like crossing over into the mainstream it would be the case of people would buy your records that normally wouldn't buy a record rock record yeah, Did you know what I mean? so you would see we would see people at shows. You know, we we were used to going to shows with people with Sonic Youth, Tad, Mud Honey, Minor Threat, Misfits, yeah, you know, Green Army Jackets, long hair, spiky hair, 
shaved hair front 242 t-shirt. But all of a sudden we were seeing people that were a bit more um, indie fans or people that were just really, really regularly dressed. Yeah. Do you think, do you know what I mean? And it would be things like where, um, or one of the weirdest things we found is whenever we'd released Trouble Gum, um, we were over visiting the guy that recorded our first two albums, Mud Wallace, he's no longer with us. We went to visit him and see and um, take him out for a curry. So we went out for a curry in Belfast. And then he said, uh, should we go to a wee bar? There's a wee bar down the corner. There's really good beer and whiskey. And we'll go down. There's a covers band in the corner. And I, they hadn't seen me and Michael come in. And I, we, we sat down and they were doing like, you know, uh, just what I needed with the cars and summer of 69. And they did a cover of Nowhere. Oh, amazing. And well, we, we were like kind of going, so we thought, right, there's a, there's a covers band in this bar, you know, doing like all these rock classics. And then we just, little, little, well, and they had no idea we were in there. It was really bizarre just sitting there kind of having a few pints with this, but they said, it's a covers band in the corner knocking out the song. How did you feel at the time? Like, Game On, for instance, was a primetime TV show yeah. and, like, hearing cover bands doing those songs, how did it feel at the time? Um, it, it was good. I mean, that was a lot of it, to be honest, and I'm not being disingenuous here, a lot of it we missed because we were touring so much. So, like, um, there was there was famously, we were on Coronation Street when the McDonald brothers oh, were having really? a fight. And uh, Jim McDonald told one of them to turn <laughs> the stereo down and it was a track of Trouble Gun that they were blasting. <laughs> But I didn't know about this because we were on tour and the game, we never saw the game on thing because I loved the show, but we were, yeah. we normally never got a chance to see it. And there was a few films, but yeah, I know things like, um, one of, one of my favorite memories of music is whenever we got, there's a place in Northern Ireland called the Ulster Hall and it's famous. It's because it's one of the few places you can play. Now during the Troubles, bands didn't really come over because everyone was terrified. It was yeah. Settled. 4,000 people had been killed. There was bombs going off left, right and centre. But a lot of bands that came over were metal or punk. And they would usually play the Ulster Hall because it was in the city centre. It wasn't in an area with any political affiliation. It was quite neutral. So people would come play the Ulster Hall. So I saw the UK Subs, Susie and the Banshees, the Smiths, Jesus and Mary Chain, all these bands there. Um, And the first time that we ever played the Ulster Hall was when Teeth Grinder was out in 1992. And I went up and... Every time I went to a gig when I was 14, 15, I would walk in and I would go and stand at the same place in the barrier. And you know that when you're looking at the stage and you can see the neon lights and the amps? Yeah. And your heart starts going, you get butterflies in your stomach because, you know, when those amps are switched on, pretty soon something good's going to happen. Yeah. And you're going to love it. So I went up and looked at our amps at Soundcheck and thought, my God, someone's going to be me tonight staring at my amp. I'm getting really excited. And the same comes about records. It's like... um one of, one of the things that I always used to fill me with pride was if we went to rock clubs that we would go to when therapy started out. So when we first came to London, Gary from Weed, you would go, okay, you've done the gig. I'll take you to feet first in Camden. There's right, a, and, yeah. it's gone, and we would go and we would hear, you know, Sonic Youth being played and all this and everyone would be dancing. And it got to the point where if we went to those clubs again, when Trouble Gun was out, there we would hear Scream Age and Nowhere, those clubs alongside all the other bands. Yeah. That was kind of, I think it was just, the fact of that, you know, I'd I'd been drunk and danced to so many other people's songs there. It was just, it really, really filled me with pride to think that there's people now dancing the music that we had made. Yeah, as and still doing that. Mm. It's just another me. Just another me. Just another me. Just another me. What would you say is the worst gig and best gig you've ever done? Hmm. 
And it's uh, they could be in like any bands that have you ever been in. Uh, the, the best gig that I think we've ever done was at the actual. I mean, we've done so many all over the world. There's been the, the time we did Brixton Academy in '94 when Trouble Gum was out. It was phenomenal. Uh, we've done. We've been high up, really high up in some festivals all across the world. Some of the shows we've done: the Mariah with Helmet and Jesus Lizard, Rollins Band, Tad. But I think if I'm keeping it kind of from our origins, we did a show in 1995 when the Infernal Love album was out. And it was us and Skunk and Nancy. Oh, amazing. Uh, skin from and us. It was us and Ash, sorry. Therapy were headlining. The album had been top five, Infernal Love, and top ten, sorry. Ash were an up-and-coming young band. This is before they broke. They were the middle band. And then a band called Joyrider that had been signed to AM were on first. But we had been on tour with Skunk and Nancy opening for us before they get big. And Skin joined us on stage to sing a song. It was a few days before Christmas. The place was absolutely rammed. At this point in time, everyone in the audience knew every word to every one of our songs. So it was a real community spirit feel. Yeah. And it was just like, because we've been on tour with these, you know, with Skunk and Nancy. They were there. We liked them. We got on with them. There was uh, all the boys from Ash were lovely. And they'd had a few kind of hits that all the punters were singing along to. Joy, Joy, Joyrider had just done a, a cover of Rush Hour by Jim Wielden that got them on top of the pops. So everyone was getting on really well. And it felt like there was... Felt like uh, this without it sounding too cheesy. The good times in the north of Ireland weren't far away. Oh, if you that's have right. three bands from the country sound like the Ulster Hall, yeah, and everyone jumping up and down singing all the lyrics because we hadn't seen that since Stiff Little Fingers in the Undertones. You know, we hadn't seen yeah. that kind of thing in the north of Ireland. So that because what it meant to me is somebody that went to see all their gigs in the front years. I think the worst um, one of them. Well, there's two. One of them was really funny, um, and the second one was like uh, a real folly. So. The funny one first was we did, whenever we were out touring Baby Teeth and Pleasure Death, the first two indie albums, we'd been playing to big crowds in Ireland and we'd, we'd gone to London and there was a bit of this in the press and we'd, we'd sold out a small 150-cap venue in London. And then we went up to the really famous One in 12 Club in Bradford, the punk club, and we were sort of thinking, you know, it's really famous, you know, everyone's played here, like all the punk bands have played here, Napalm Death have played here, Black Flag have played here. This is going to be amazing. And the doors, there was no support band and when the doors opened, there was two people walked in, <laughs> and the barmaid felt so bad that she phoned up some of her mates. <laughs> oh, bless her! And said, "Can you can you actually hold on from playing for a wee while?" So we had all around some ready to play. And the people that had bought tickets, like all two of them, went, "What we do is this old smiles, bars, and dads are just coming down from wherever they are." <laughs> so she rounded them all up and she made them stand at the front. So it was really, really sweet. It was brilliant. Ah. But I think this was in, we did a show in Germany and we could book the play a show um, the same day and in the same region as the Wacken Festival. You know the Wacken Festival? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The biggest festival in Germany. We've done yeah. it ourselves a few times and loved it. But a few years ago, uh, we weren't on the bill at Wacken. So our agent said, well, you're not on the bill this year, so why don't we book you to play? And I kid you, it was called The Battle of, the Battle of Metal. And it okay. was... It was meant to be, we didn't realize until we got there, it was just down there from Wacken. Now, they, they were expecting 25,000 people there. And our tour manager was going, this isn't far from Wacken. Wacken's got 70,000 committed heavy rock fans there, and it's sold out in advance. I don't know where the promoter thinks he's going to get 25,000 people from. And headlining it were some German new metal band that were allegedly big in Germany. We were on before them. And the opening slot was a lot of old kind of, hair metal glam metal bands from america and germany that you know i've never heard of right but i i kid you not i think i think something like 38 people turned up fuck and most most of them only 
went into the field for the German new metal band. So we actually played a full skill, in a full skill thing with a full pier. I mean, the guy lost a fortune putting it on. Fucking hell. It's called the Battle of Metal. And it, we always joke about it. And it's like, we went on and on. Can you imagine full production, full PA, full light show, side visualizers, the whole lot. And we walk up the steps and we play and there's nobody there. There's nobody there. We were playing, it's like sound checking, but we play the full set and there's one or two striders watch it. And I think why it's the worst gig ever was something like that. It was so funny. We took it in a stride. We played the full set. Yeah. We, we threw the ships. We even had the banter. Yeah, yeah. Hands in the air. You know, we couldn't even see any hands. We going, <laughs> let's see your hands in the air. So we had fun. But all the all the other people that put that festival on, there were people in tears at the end of the night. You know, people oh, had lost a lot of money. That was, that was different. But we always, that's the end joke now. If we, if we play a, a place that we've never, a festival we've never heard of before, our tour manager for a long time is the long-suffering Richard Baker. So as we're arriving on festival site, we turn around to him and go, will this be another battle of metal, Rich? <laughs> <laughs> He'll never live that down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what would you say is your proudest moment? Uh, pretty simple. It's getting uh, our very first seven-inch done. Yeah. It is because whenever we, we made a demo tape, um, we didn't even know when we started the band, we were rehearsing on Monday, Mondays in Fife's house, writing this music. We got Michael involved. We, we did our first demo tape, and there was a guy that we'd heard of, used to be in a glam band called Cruella DeVille that was signed to EMI in the very early 80s, called Colin Munzer. And he's quite a strange character. And the only the only studio that we could afford was, was Colin's studio in the attic in his house. And he had a 16-track, which is where we did, we did our demo. And then we did a second one at a place in Lurgan, which was like used to making jingles for radio stations and stuff. So we actually thought there's no record labels are going to put this out. There was no record labels at this point in time in, in Belfast. And you know, Good Vibrations, it kind of wasn't really doing anything. A&R people didn't want to come over to Belfast. They would go to Dublin and Cork and Galway, but they wouldn't come to the north because it was too terrifying. We sent away all the demo tapes we made. We sent away to every single Indian punk label. We like now words of warning in Newport and Wales put one of our tracks on a compilation, but but nobody bit, nobody said, Oh, yeah, we really like this, we'd like to put it out. So, um, we decided we'd do a seven inch single ourselves, and I think that's our biggest achievement because everything I wouldn't be talking to you now if we hadn't done that. Yeah, and you know, I worked in a factory, the other two, like Fife was at uni, he got a job working in the bar there, Michael was at college. And he gets a save. He got a job in the coffee shop or something. And we literally scrimped together enough money to record two tracks for the session. We had to send it over to the UK. There was no press and plant in Ireland, so we sent it over to the UK. We got a friend of ours to do the artwork for free. And then whenever we actually had a box of a thousand seven inch singles, that was the most proudest I've ever been of anything I've ever done with her. We made it happen. Yeah, it was like everything. Everything in Northern Ireland in nineteen ninety said this will never ever happen because this does not happen to people like you. You know, I mean, punk bands like you, you know, you can sell for it. And, you know, there were bands, uh, punk bands like Pink Turds and Space, F-U-A-L, that were putting out records themselves. And, you know, they, they kind of gave us a bit of advice. But they were from Belfast, and Belfast was cool. We were from East Antrim, and that was like, you know, sticks. So the fact that we had that and everything that came from it, John Peel, the record deal, getting, I mean, even seeing it in our favorite record shop behind the counter, all, all the stuff like that. So that's where it all started, and I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. That the fact that we could have easily said, "Nah, let's not let's not get these, let's not save up all this money, let's buy amps instead or something." But I'm really proud that we did that. And so you should be, man, because you have literally just made this all happen yourself, haven't you? And I'm pretty much repeating what you just said, but finding out where BBC is, 
handing in that demo, going to these gigs, driving to these venues. You 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 put it all on your line uh, yourselves, just made it happen. That's that's fucking incredible, man. Yeah, it's just, we've always had a really good work ethic, you know. And if it's like you never know what will happen. It's like Ian McKay from from Minor Threat and Fugazi and Discord Records. I mean, he said, unless you try, you never know what might happen. He said, he was saying, I read a podcast once. It was the the A to Z of Fugazi, and someone was saying they were inspired by Ian. It was someone that lived in Washington, and they were asking him for advice one day. And he said, Hey, you know, you never know. You go out of the house today, you might have an adventure. Yeah, and I thought that was it. And but if you don't, if you don't go out of the house, you won't have that adventure. What's yeah. the worst going to happen? So yeah it's like just try and that that's we always had this kind of can-do attitude and a lot of that came from the punk bands we liked and admired and looked up to and it was always like well unless we go and play every single tiny little venue to 10 people you know we're never ever going to get a chance to go back and because the way we always look at gigging is it's the same with records we do this what's the worst can happen if no one buys this we'll have 330 copies each in a garage (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean and that's the worst that can happen yeah yeah but it's also the same with gigs. You know, someone has said to us, why don't you come down and play Kill in the suburbs of Dublin? And everyone's going to go and play there. And we always go, well, if we go and play to Kill and 10 people turn up and we do an amazing show, if we go back, they'll bring their mates. There'll be 20 people there. Yeah. And yeah. Go back, it's all school. And you don't know who one of those 10 people might be either. Yeah. And you and a lot of a lot of people we know now, we met back in those days. And we've got mm. friends for life from that scene. And yeah, hard, hard work and, and just... And it's good. It's a, it's a good way. Um, it taught us a lot of lessons, a lot of life lessons doing that record. You know what I mean? It taught us, well, we, we made that happen. Yeah. Uh, and it's anytime we have a down moment, if we look like if we get dropped by a record label or if, you know, something happens on tour and uh, two gigs get pulled or something like that, we can always look back on that time and go, well, you know, things will find a way of working themselves out. So it's Thank you. Okay, I got four last questions for you. They're like quick fire questions. This is what I call the uh, the final four way. Mm-hmm. First question is: If you were a boxer, wrestler, mm-hmm. or MMA fighter, mm-hmm. what would your entrance music be? Oh, I'm trying to think. I would probably like to think it'd be like Barry McGuigan. So it'd be something <laughs> kind of fleet-footed. I would say it would be. Um, Dead Set on Destruction by Husker Du. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. Question two. Intro or outro, what is the greatest theme tune ever written? The Pink Panther. Ah, brilliant yeah. one. Yeah. it's It's got the hint of kind of cool exotic jazz, and then it goes into full-on. It does. And then, and then it goes into full-on kind of bonkers. Um, I like that. It's brilliant. Not only was that a great answer... But you, that was very quick. That was straight off the hip. I've always loved that. And I once, yeah. learned, I once learned to play it on the guitar because I saw a guitar magazine where they did a transport. I, I, I would have forgotten it now, but there was a brilliant, <laughs> a brilliant guitar arrangement somebody did for Total Guitar Magazine. It was great. Oh, amazing. Well, great answer. Okay. What song would you like played at your funeral? Um, this Bitter Earth by Dina Washington. Ah. Oh. No, it's again straight off the hip. You thought yeah, about it. I've always thought bit, bittersweet, bittersweet, yeah. a, bit like, a bit like life itself, and it's just good. She's got a great. Isn't it just? 
And there's a wonderful version in um, that Max Richter, the modern composer, does with her. And he takes um, part of his classical music and puts Dina Washington's version over. What was the Shutter Island, the Martin Scorsese? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. From the Martin Scorsese movie. Yeah. And it's, it's a mashup of this bit of Earth and Max Richter. And that's what I'd like, yeah. Beautiful. Okay. Last but not least, what advice would you give your younger self? Take a beat. Take a bait. Take a beat, as in beat, B-E-A-T. So <laughs> oh, right. Beat, yeah. So whenever things are getting, well, I would have, um, I would like to say to myself, sometimes if things are going wrong or you're not sure about something, I would maybe get myself in a tizzy about it or get myself worked up. But one thing I have learned with advancing years is if you take a beat, step back. So if something's all kicking off and you're not sure and you're getting stressed, just lean back in your chair and take a beat and right. and then engage with the subject at hand. And that's what it said himself, because there's too many times all three of us could have done that advice. <laughs> <laughs> and do you think your younger self would listen? No, of course he wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andy, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a fucking honor and a pleasure and i fucking love that that was brilliant thank you so much no i really had lots of fun chas thanks so much for having us on the show you're more than welcome man and uh when a therapy back on the road well we're, we're starting bits and pieces now we're back on we're doing an album launch shows then we're doing shows in belgium and holland but we decided because we did a, nearly 100 shows last year we're gonna really hit the uk and ireland and europe September, October, November, December, and I have it on good authority from our agent that November and December will be when we're doing club and theatre shows in the UK and Ireland. Amazing. We will be doing Stone Dead Festival over the summer, uh, and a few other festivals are coming in. But yeah, so we'll be out in the road after the summer. Amazing. Well, at the London show, let's grab a beer. Good man. Yeah, please come over and say hello. I'd love to see Yeah, you. absolutely. We've got a new album coming out. Can we say what it's called yet? Or is that... Yeah, uh, it's called yeah. Hard Cold Fire. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Can't wait. Can't wait. Good man. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there you are. Andy Cairns, everybody. What a lovely guy. I've been a massive therapy fan since the 90s, so I was so excited to get to chat to him and he was just beyond lovely man it was such a good laugh we had a brilliant chat together man it was so good and what a combination of like either hilarious stories or real heartwarming success stories of going out getting off your ass and getting shit done i love it i love that stuff so what else can i say other than andy thank you so much so don't forget may 5th this friday Hard Cold Fire, brand new album for Therapy. Go and check it out. It's absolutely fantastic. It's classic Therapy. Big heavy riffs, melodic choruses, catchy hooks and meaningful lyrics. I can't say enough good stuff about this album, but don't take my word for it. Go out and get involved. Listen to it on all streaming platforms or buy yourself a physical copy wherever you get your physical copies from. But if you don't mind me suggesting, go to any independent record store and keep the scene alive. Sorry. Sorry about that. And if you didn't already, Therapy have got an incredible back catalogue also that's just sitting there waiting for you to discover it. Trouble Gum is one of my favourite albums of the 90s. 
So however you listen to your music, it's just sitting there waiting for you. Why don't you go join it? I wanted to just say another big thank you to Andy and the guys from Therapy for giving me their time and sitting down with us and joining us on this podcast. It was such a great episode. I loved it. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Also want to say a big shout out to Harris for helping making that happen. You are the man. I owe you some non-alcoholic beers. And that's about it. I want to say a big thank you to everyone that's listening. I hope you enjoyed it enough to join us again next time. If you want to get in touch with us, hit us up at tbbtbbpodcast at gmail.com. If you've got any thoughts on the show, or you've got any stories you'd like to share about your band, I would love to hear them. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, you can find us on both Instagram and Facebook at The Band Before The Band Before. I've set up a Twitter. And that's as far as I got on that. I'll get to that another day. Thank you so much for all the five-star reviews we keep getting. Please keep them coming. They're doing my damage. There you go. The world of good. But anyway, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And I'll see you at the next one at the Band Before the Band Before podcast. Have a great weekend or week, whatever time you're listening to this. I'll just shut up now. Bye.